Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Checkmate from Glassnode. Checkmate, welcome to the podcast. G'day, Joe. Good to be here, mate. Awesome. Before you know, we get into the whole ETH debacle, um, I want to talk about the idea of, of Bitcoin and money. So personally, I think economic systems kind of converge on one money, and, and Bitcoin is the best money because it has the best monetary properties, immutably scarce, portable, durable, divisible, etc. And I think you know, Bitcoin is this, the least uncertain good. Do you agree with most of that, or how are you thinking about money and, and Bitcoin specifically? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think the first thing I'd say is that Bitcoin is definitely a teacher. So, I mean, I never thought about markets or, or money or any of these concepts until I came across it. And, uh, you know, it, it really is one of those beautiful things where it teaches you to think quite deeply about many, many concepts. And, you know, you hear lots of people talk about, you know, money is a, you know, it's, it's a belief, it's a continued belief that people have to have some kind of faith in it. And in many ways, that's true, right? People have to believe in fiat currency because otherwise you'd be crazy to use it. So it does make sense when you play it through from first principles that the scarcest money will win. Um, when you play it through and, you know, when you look at Bitcoin, especially in the field um, of the rest of the, the cryptocurrencies, um, it does just stand unique. And, uh, you know, uh, one of my friends is a um, relatively new Bitcoiner. And uh, I was asking questions, actually. It was, it was good. We're at dinner with a, with a handful of fairly seasoned Bitcoiners. And um, I actually asked the question, why Bitcoin, right? Similar to what you just asked me. And there was a variety of answers, you know, scarcity and energy and proof of work and all this stuff, which is all relevant. Um, but my mate actually had the best answer, and it's because Satoshi left. And when you look at, we'll talk about this Ethereum thing momentarily, but um, what I've certainly come to realize is I think that's the answer. The answer really is why Bitcoin is, in fact, unique is because Satoshi left. And oh, the, that whole, and again, people can call it religious or whatever it is, but um, the fact that it left a void where there was no power, and it kind of equalized the playing field, is in a digital world the only way it can, in my view, actually be. And when people ask me, why do I value Bitcoin? I buy it because I know it's going to be there in 10 years' time. I know it's going to be there in 100 years' time. For, the, for the, the time of my life and probably for my kids and grandkids, I'm quite confident that gold and Bitcoin are the two things that are going to stick around. Now, the world's going to be chaos and all through that um, between now and then. But I'm quite positive that blocks will still be coming in and gold will still be um, unsolved by the alchemy problem. So when I look at those two things, you've kind of got the, the forces of nature that just keep this thing, um, it's certainty in an increasingly uncertain world. So when I think about what is money, I mean, it's essentially a tool that you can use to transfer your value, right? Um, it, it, apples are no good because they perish. Um, you know, I may not want to trade my apple for your fish at this particular time. Whereas you have this intermediate, and again, you play through all of the Austrian economics um, sound money principles, and it makes sense that you would want for any long-term store of value um, and transfer of value of the time and space, then Bitcoin becomes an extremely promising proposition. It's not perfect, um, but it's certainly in that realm of, you know, it's pretty damn hard to beat, and it's certainly a lot better than what we have at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely agree with the statement that, you know, Bitcoin is, is not perfect, it's far from perfect, but it's the best option that I think we have. And so would you agree that in one economic system, it trends towards just one monetary good? Or can there be, I know you mentioned gold too, but can there be, you know, a bunch of different monetary goods or will it normally just trend towards one? Or what are your thoughts? No, it's a very interesting question. And it's one I've been thinking about, particularly since the whole, um, uh, the sanctions on Russia thing, because I think that really opened the door to 
we really have to think about collateral now. And obviously, treasuries came under the microscope. Um, you know, Luke Groman does a lot of good work kind of profiling what that means. My, when I look at that kind of problem, there's a Lindy effect with gold, particularly with, with central banks and nation states. And if they can't save their money in treasuries, I would put a pretty good bet that they're probably going to start using gold. Um, we're seeing, you know, more and more movements in futures markets and um, the desire to settle oil with gold and stuff like this. So I suspect that that Lindy effect will probably carry on at the nation state level. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin, they've then got the El Salvador experiment. So when I look at the El Salvador experiment, there's a lot of good that could come out of it. But then I also have this kind of suspicion in the back of my mind. Do I want my government having control over my nation's private keys? That's a scary proposition. Now, I know that El Salvador has a you know, custody solution in the US, but the same principles apply. Bitcoin has its own constraints because of the private key problem. And you, know, you essentially need to introduce custodians. In many ways, you have the same problems as gold across a lot of these elements. But at the same time, it's a real pain in the ass to ship gold, right? You've got to stick it on a, on a warship. You've got to have military personnel, cost a couple of million dollars. You really don't want to do that very often. And between the process of settling, you've essentially got a liability to your counterparty. Um, Bitcoin, you can settle that instantaneously, which is a very, very unique property. Um, and it also maintains the scarcity. So I can see these things almost, if I play this forward with the big nation states, I can see them storing their wealth increasingly in gold. I can also see them settling with each other on a semi-annual kind of basis, maybe, but using Bitcoin for those smaller scale settlements, right? We need to just move a couple of billion dollars around for a government that's small change, just send some, some BTC. Now, that will, over time, become increasingly useful and I would suspect increasingly part of portfolios to execute on these trades, especially when you start factoring in the mining and the flaring of, of uh, natural gas and things like that in oil, the synergies with energy companies. You really start seeing that this could, in fact, start playing out where oil has a Bitcoin price. Um, so I can see this kind of playing out and uh, that, that's kind of my general view on where I th see things going. Um, I can also see Bitcoin as like, I've, I've kind of envisioned it's like a big liquidity ball in the middle. Um, I think Jack Mallows and a lot of the work they're doing with uh, settling with Lightning Network is interesting. I've got Apple stock. Uh, my friend over in the Eurozone wants Euros. I can send Apple in. It gets traded for BTC, zipped across the Lightning Network, swapped out into Euros or Yen, whatever it is, and goes to the counterparty. So Bitcoin becomes the central liquidity pool that literally everything could be traded through. So there's a lot of interesting things that can happen. Um, obviously, we're a long way from any of these futures, but uh, you know, the optionality, I think, is so important for Bitcoin. It's, uh, it's certainly got plenty of them, um, as long as people are open-minded enough to build them. Yeah, definitely. So I guess, would you say it's safe to say that you know, like a, a, a reasonable portfolio obviously contains maybe a variety of different assets? You might have equities, you might have gold, you might have Bitcoin, you might have other things, but... The idea of money mainly trends toward one, one or two, maybe Bitcoin and gold, like those are the two monetary goods. And so I'm curious, do you see that like, and definitely want your opinion on, honest opinion on this. Do you see like this is maybe like where the idea where toxic maximalism comes from? Like Bitcoiners want to make sure newcomers don't lose money, like buying other random scam tokens. Uh, like, you know, Cardano, Ripple or whatever, when Bitcoin is, is clearly like the best form of money. And, and from like a risk reward perspective, it's in my opinion, kind of unmatched, especially in, in the crypto space. What are your thoughts on that? And like, are you a fan of toxic mac mas maximalism or, or not? No, it's a fascinating debate. And there's, there's many answers to it, to be honest. 
Um, I certainly understand where they're coming from, right? And uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a toxic maximalist, but I'm pretty damn close to a maximalist. And that is from me having used many of these altcoins, right? And I still hold a bunch of them. Um, but I experiment, understand, and by experimenting and understanding them, my arguments are, in my opinion, certainly better than if I hadn't used them, right? I mean, experience teaches you like nothing else. So in my view, actually experiencing these things and seeing the ups and downs, the breakages, the things that worked, the things that didn't, and recognizing the pitfalls is an important part of the process. Um, it's how you formulate you know, good arguments against things um, or for things. Now, the toxic maximalism, um, and I think this is an important debate that's been going on, there's maximalism in general, um, which is, you know, in many ways, you've come through all the, your, your common sense, your rationality, whatever it is, your research, you have come to the realization that Bitcoin is the most viable contender, which is more or less where my camp sits, right? I, I genuinely believe it's probably the most viable contender. However, I don't believe that um, negates the necessity or the existence of other things. So a good example of this is the likes of Monero, right? Bitcoin will never, ever, ever achieve the level of privacy that Monero can achieve. Um, in my view, I just don't think it ever can, especially at the base layer, um, and certainly not in any kind of meaningful time frame. Now, Monero is a tool for the right job. And as an engineer, to me, I look at that and I say, well, right tool, right job. It deserves to exist. It's certainly not a scam. Um, it's arguably one of the most impressive cryptography projects in the world. Um, so when you look at all these things in place, Monero has a role. Now, what do I hold? What would you hold it for? What would I hold it for as an insurance policy, just in case I need it? Um, I don't need a lot of it because in that event, it will be immensely valuable, right? Or I could use it for that particular purpose. But it's not one of those things that you need at all points in time, right? If I'm storing my wealth, I want something, as you said, with the risk to reward profile of stability and certainty, which is what I get from BTC. So again, right tool, right job. Um, within that framework, 99.999% of crypto is an absolute, without question, scam, right? Um, misguided uh, incentives, poorly designed. Um, you know, the reality of the situation is that startups mostly fail, right, generally speaking. So apply that logic. I forget what the number is, but it's, you know, 90-odd percent um, of startups fail. A lot of crypto projects, it, the higher failure rate is actually because most of them are so easy to issue and get money out of, and we're in this kind of Ponzi fiat end of state economy, that sadly, there's a lot more of them, right? Um, it's easy to copy paste, put a new website on it, looks like a new project, retail buys it. So coming back to the toxic maximalism, it certainly had an important role back in 2017, which I admit I wasn't around for, but I understand from having studied that era that 2017, the scaling wars, the toxicity and its real genesis, um, I mean, it was around before that, but that's where it really took off and it served its purpose. It protected Bitcoin, it got it through that very, very challenging test um, and made it to the other side. Now, in its current format, I understand why it lingers. It's a cultural thing. Um, you know, it's the same reason why people become smokers when they work on a work site where people smoke because it's a social thing, right? It becomes a, um, a part of the addiction. It's why you show up on Twitter every day. Now, the challenge is that I think they're, they're like white blood cells, right? They go and attack anything that's going to potentially disrupt Bitcoin. My concern with it is that it's gone a little bit too far and that the, the white blood cells are attacking literally everything. Now, that's okay because they're a minority, right? It, it's not the end of the world and it's always going to be there. You can't stop it. Um, but what I would certainly impress upon them is that, you know, and what I tried to do with this Ethereum piece, I think it's not a hit piece. I, I made that video because it's a series of genuine concerns that have the research behind it. Toxic maximalists would be so much more effective in their kills 
if they actually made really, really well documented, instead of just yelling and screaming about things and calling everything this shitcoin, do the due diligence and kill it good. You know what I mean? Like, do it pro- do the job properly. Um, stop, stop dancing around the point and actually make your point. Show people irrefutable, become undeniable. Show people that Ripple is an absolute scam, right? Undeniably. If you do that, it's over, right? Game over. You actually can achieve your objective. So my view is not so much that it needs to stop. I think it will always be there, and I think it has a purpose. Um, what I would challenge the toxic, um, toxic Maximus crowd is to say, I mean, there's obviously the memes and the fun, which carry on, but there's the other side to it. If you genuinely want to have an impact, understand what you're attacking, because you'll be more effective that way. And second of all, you'll also potentially just work out that there are other things out there. Um, it doesn't mean that you're a shitcoiner. It means that you just understand there's ideas. You can say, hey, maybe Bitcoin could benefit from that. Or as we're seeing with the Ethereum thing, we're watching a whole governance debate, which we can now learn from. We can watch the chaos that's going on now, take those ideas, take those lessons, educate people who weren't there in 2017 on a very similar mechanism and take that adversarial thinking and apply it to BTC. So that's my general view is it's a learning experience. It can be done better. The campaign isn't working in terms of stopping scams because there's plenty of scams. Just means there's a better way to do it. So stop and review your process and you might learn something new. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When I wrote out that question originally, I, I kind of thought that that would be your answer for the most part where you think many of them have you know great intentions like they understand Bitcoin um, and there are a lot of scams and they're trying to call them out. However, you you personally think that they're doing it in a way that's just purely ineffective. And I, and Essentially. I think like you, yeah, the, the, and, the campaign is not really working. Um, so sit back, reassess. Um, again, the memes and stuff are fantastic. It's hilarious. However, the actual effectiveness at convincing people not to buy into scams, as, ref, as mentioned by the $2 trillion that we just saw wiped out, uh, yeah, you know, you've got, to, you've got to take a look at yourself and say, did we actually achieve the end goal? And I think the, the challenge here, and it's, it's a very interesting one, in many ways, it's actually, it's not a logical debate. It's not a technical debate. And the reason why what I just said before is probably uh, irrelevant um, is because it's a moral debate. This is a, um, if you own anything else other than Bitcoin, it's an immoral position. Now, in that circumstance, um, you get yourself into a, there are kind of logical fallacies that you'll end up in that you can't actually explain away. Um, and you, you kind of back yourself into a, a philosophical corner um, where you can't back down from the position because it's, a, it's a, a, a religious one, right? There is no answer to the contrary. Now, you know, again, that will always persist, but it's, it's a religious and a moral debate in many circumstances, not a technical one. Yeah. Um, you recently published a video that basically articulates why the current status of the ETH merge and this is a quote from your tweet, is a monumental blunder. Can you like quickly summarize your, your main thesis for those that haven't watched the video yet? Sure. So to, to get beyond the, uh, the clickbaity title, I do believe it's a monumental <laughs> blunder. Um, I think it's kind of the end of the line of a series of blunders. But essentially, um, they've done a lot of work um, on the engineering side to make proof of stake function. Proof of stake is technologically far more complex than proof of work, both at a code level, at a consensus level, at a number of modules that need to be running in, co- in um, cohesion. It's a complex beast. So you can do all of this engineering work. You can spend, in this instance, since 2016, years and years and years of technical investment to solve this problem. 
And if you leave a gaping open hole, that means that all of that work is for void anyway, then you're, you're stuffed up. So what I tried to demonstrate in this video, and it's, it's, it's a culmination of many ideas and things I've seen for a long time, and it was crystallized by two events. Um, the first one was the tornado cache event, um, which we'll touch on in a sec. The second one was uh, a tweet that actually Lynn Alden put out, which kind of really just solidified it to me, um, which was basically a flipping case, um, which I'm actually aligned with, to be honest. Um, basically, she's saying, you know, Ethereum could become fully centralized, fully regulated, fully captured, like the treasury market, and the treasuries are bigger than the gold market, right? Bitcoin takes the decentralized gold approach. Um, the I think the statistics are something like 10% of people align with libertarianism. I know there's more people coming from different political ideologies into Bitcoin, but generally speaking, that's been the crowd it's attracted so far. Um, so you're talking about Bitcoin having a 10% mind share versus the fiat system, which has a 90% mind share. Bitcoin's going to get flipped, right? So that's the argument. So the tornado cash thing to me was new information, um, not in the sense that it couldn't have been seen coming, but in the sense that um, it came to light, right? It became a real thing, and now we can actually talk about it and see the ramifications. So what I tried to document in that video was many layers of problems, and essentially they've done all this layered technology to make proof-of-stake work. But the gap that exists is can your consensus mechanism in proof-of-stake be captured which means that someone else owns that infrastructure. So to kind of lay out the, the core points, um, and to be fair, I, I actually wrote an article. It's not all the points, but it's a good chunk of them. Um, way back when Bankless didn't even have a paywall, uh, back in their very, very early days, I wrote an article. Um, it was a why ETH won't sustain a monetary premium back in January 2020. Um, and Vitalik himself actually responded to it. So, you know, it's, 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 it at least got some kind of attention. And I outlaid a lot of these ideas, right? Um, basically, Ethereum is constantly changing. There's risk in terms of monetary policy. Um, there's a centralization vector on these apps. And what we've essentially seen play out is the realization of a lot of these risks. They, they weren't dealt with. So to kind of list them out, the first one, I think, stake was always destined to centralize. Um, now, in proof of work, if a miner is in, if 40% of the miners are in America, 40% are, uh, I don't know, somewhere in, in Asia, China and Kazakhstan, and 20% are in you know, Venezuela, Iran, places like that, um, countries that um, America isn't overly friendly with. If you mine an OFAC, uh, if you want to send a transaction from a sanctioned address, well, the American miners, they don't have to mine it. They can choose not to mine it. We saw this with Marathon. They said, yeah, we're doing OFAC. But the guys over in Iran, or the guys in Venezuela, they'll gladly mine that block, that transaction. They don't care. Let's go. Um, so they will gladly mine it, and then it's, it's in the blockchain, build on top, carry on. Um, if the government says you can't even mine on those blocks, well, then the U.S. mining industry goes to zero. They move somewhere else, like we saw in China. What happens? Move on. Proof of stake, well, energy is diverse. Energy is everywhere. It's all over the place. And as we know, Bitcoin seeks out the cheapest wasted stranded energy, which is everywhere. Capital is heavily centralized in America because it's deepest liquid capital markets, most VCs, most capital to flow around. And what we have seen empirically is that Coinbase, Binance, Kraken, Lido, all these services that offer convenience to their user, users that don't have 32 ETH, so they have to pull, um, users who just want convenience, which is a lot, um, uh, the, all the, the network effects of minor extractable value and all these kind of technical reasons why you earn more network effects, essentially, economies of scale, you will earn more in a pool. Um, there's a lot of reasons why little Timmy is not going to stake 
you know, I use the case, ETH could go to 10K, right? Which is where the bulls want it to go. 10K times 32 ETH is 320 grand. Timmy, the average person, is not putting $320,000. I know I wouldn't, and I'm technically savvy. I wouldn't put that on my laptop and let it run on my kitchen counter or my cupboard. No, sorry. I'm delegating that risk. Um, some of the ETH influencers even said, um, there's a tweet in my video that basically says, you know, um, watch out, solo stakers. It's, it's possible that OFAC may come for, for you, the solo staker, and say, you can't mine that block. I mean, little Timmy's going straight to Binance and saying, take that risk away from me. I don't want to touch it. So there's a lot of reasons why stake will centralize. And the empirical evidence is it already has. Now, I made a mistake in that video um, where I said 67% was the kind of point of control threshold. It's actually not. I found it recently it's 33%. It's one third. So that means that Lido is very, very close to being one, one validator. Now, we've seen this experiment play out in delegated proof of stake. EOS, um, I forget, there was one that was associated with Tron and Justin Sun, I forget what it was called, but we've seen these experiments play out already. Once you go delegate a proof of stake, it's over, right? They get captured, a handful of actors can change the rules. Um, it's a really, really risky situation. So there's a lot of reasons why stake will centralise. Once stake is centralised, it's basically like all the miners being in the same place. Once all the miners are in the same place, censorship becomes a risk. The argument from the Ethereum crowd is that they can then hard fork and basically slash those entities, to which I say, well, if you go and slash 68% of your stakers as the 33%, first of all, where are those rules? What are the rules for what you can and can't do? Who writes them? Who's responsible for that? Isn't that kind of a bit centralizing? Um, and if you do go and slash Coinbase and Binance, that's just all those people who didn't have 32 ETH and weren't technically savvy being slashed by the Twitter guys who've been ETH early adopters for six years and have accumulated multiple 32 ETH and uh, stake, stake it on their solo machine. It's a political game where you're basically slashing the pleb by the elites and you're going to take away their stake because they didn't know any better or they didn't have an opportunity to do any different. You're going to slash them for principles that are subjective anyway. It's a political risk. And my engineering case here is I say, well... There is a potential solution, and that is reshuffle your mining, your staking pools. And the only way they can do that is by shipping the code to allow people to withdraw their ETH and solo stake it or redeposit it elsewhere. Now, that code, if I understand correctly, is six months to 12 months away at best. The engineer in me says, okay, put your pride over there, ship the withdrawal code, reshuffle your mining pools, educate people, get Timmy off Coinbase, give him a solo staking option for less than 32 ETH, whatever it is. Solve that problem, then merge. Because at the moment, if they, if they don't merge and the government comes in or any kind of regulations or whatever it is, any captured vector, all you do is you capture 12% of the supply on a beacon chain. You could, in theory, spin up a brand new beacon chain and say, stuff you. There's no, it's an isolated risk. Let it go, right? That's your, cap, that's your collateral damage. Um, if that really gets to it. But rather than do something like that, they, they should ship the code, allow people to reshuffle, then merge. But it's political, and I believe proof of stake is a political system. And as a result, it looks like they're going to merge irrespective. And basically, they're going to hope that there is no risk. They're going to, and they're going to try and do this UASF if something does go wrong. And I just think that if you go and slash all your users on Binance and Coinbase, they're going to tell their friends... They're not buying ETH ever again. They're going to be pretty upset. I think that's a PR nightmare. You took away people's coins because they didn't know any better. And uh, 
I think that's just not a very good approach. I think that you should deal with it at an engineering level, solve and mitigate the problem, rather than hope it doesn't manifest and go straight in with a nuclear club and hope that that fixes it. Yeah, makes sense. Having some connection issues, but I think once we upload, it'll be good. So missed a little bit of what you said there. Um, even towards the end, but even if ETH uh, you know, does delay or, or even cancels the merge, in the long term, can, can it compete against other smart contract platforms? To me, it kind of seems that if ETH gets too busy, users will just move to other less expensive change, chains and there's just kind of competition between these smart contract, contract platforms. Do you agree um, with that? This is a fascinating question, and I think I'd posit this at the start of the video, actually. Um, I don't know, for the life of me, what advantage Ethereum's going to have in the proof-of-stake space. Um, proof-of-stake will not fix gas fees, certainly not out the gate. The idea is that it opens up sharding and these other technological layers. I don't even really touch on the technological side because it doesn't matter, because if you get captured the political layer, it doesn't matter what technology you have. But you raise a very, very important point, which is that Ethereum is walking into a proof-of-stake realm where there's Solanas, um, there's all sorts of other networks that have done the lessons learned. They've already essentially solved many of these problems. There's, there's gas fees. Again, nothing's perfect. Solana's a centralized system. Avalanche is going to have trade-offs. They all have their different trade-offs. But the overall case here is that Ethereum doesn't have a great deal of edge. They do have a lot of technical debt. Right? None of these other chains have to do proof-of-stake merges and all this type of stuff. Um, so I, I, I'm not in really convinced that um, Ethereum has an advantageous proof-of-stake. I don't think its implementation is necessarily better, strictly, than any other approach. Um, I think they all have the same risk of centralization. Um, I don't know what technological edge it really has. And even if it does have edge, it's going to take many, many years to build out. Now, that's okay because you know, building out things over time is, is part of the process. Um, these systems will take time to build. But I, I do question the logic of, of actually going proof of stake in the first place, especially in light of these risks. Um, again, I, I very, may very well have some of these concepts just, just backwards and completely wrong, but um, the thing that was telling for me, and you know, I, I'm a big person who looks for empirical evidence. right? I, I like to compare my thesis to the real world. Um, I was, to be honest, shocked, um, but a little bit disappointed, it's probably the best word, at how little the Ethereum community seemed to really... I was hoping someone blew my argument out of the water, just just nuked it and told me I was a complete idiot, to which I would say, thank you very much. That, that's pretty much the best result, right? I want to be dead wrong because the outcome of my thesis is not great. I want to be dead wrong. Unfortunately, I didn't get the pushback from that. So, you know, when I, when I look at the risk that's in front of you, I look at the opportunity, I look at all these things, I just, I don't see the necessity to do this proof of stake thing, aside from political, um, you know, we've already doubled down. They want to double down on the environmental ESG thing, which I think is also a big blunder. There's a lot of layers to it, but ultimately I think it's more political than technological. They said back in 2016, they're going to have a proof of stake that became part of the social contract. And here we are. So I actually don't think there's any advantages for them there, but you know, this is, this is part of the, uh, part of the game they play. Yeah, definitely. If, Somehow the merge, or you know, maybe there's decent odds. Who knows? If somehow the, the merge is successful, how would you still like value ETH long term? Because, in a, like like I was talking about at the beginning, I personally don't think ETH is money. 
or ever would become money. I think there's just too much uncertainty around it. And like I said, I think in economic systems, humans trend or converge on one good to be money. And I think that's Bitcoin. Um, but how would you value ETH? Like, to me, it may make sense to do some sort of like DCF analysis with like fees burning, similar to like stock buybacks. I know like if you look at shares outstanding for Apple, it's you know trending down. It's the ultrasound money that the ETH mm -hmm. ETHs say it is. However, you know Apple stock is not money, and neither is ETH. How would you think about valuing ETH from like a fundamentals perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good question. Um, and you know, my my case is that from a technological perspective. Um, they've already merged uh, three or four different test nets successfully. So I suspect that if they go ahead technologically, they'll probably succeed. So I think the merge will probably be successful, um, which, you know, credit where it's due, um, bloody remarkable feat of engineering. Um, you, you can't take that away from them. It's a, a remarkable feat. So uh, props to them on that. Um, in terms of how you value this thing, I agree that I don't see it as a monetary asset. However, you could argue that Apple is a monetary asset because people treat it as a savings account. So, um, and, and this is actually coming back to the, the tweet that Lynn talked about before. Um, it's possible that you could value it similar to a bond, right? It's got some kind of yield, plus they're also be, it's a deflationary bond, so to speak. Um, there is a flipping case, because you can treat it as a thing that yields some kind of return. There's a fee burn, which also increases, you know, you've got a dollar cost average model on top of a monetary style asset. Um, do I consider it sound money? Absolutely not. And this is what I really captured in my, my piece back with Pankless in uh, 2020. Um, the reason why there's a difference between hardness and soundness. Hardness is just the, you know, 2% inflation, 1% inflation, deflation. That's just the, it's a, it's a number. It's a measurable thing. Um, how hard is it to, to produce, more or less? Um, then there's the soundness. And the soundness is, can someone come in and literally change the monetary policy? Um, there's no argument in my mind that ETH is unsound because it, it li literally is changing the balance of its monetary policy. Now, the concern that I have, particularly, and I again, I, I touch on this in the video, is all of the decisions are being made to benefit ETH holders, which people go, hey, that sounds great. But it benefits existing ETH holders. Now, I have a theory um, or a mental model that I use. They've got this burn mechanism, right? EIP-1559. Now, the challenge with EIP-1559 is it's, it's essentially a... It benefits the people who currently hold ETH the most and people in the future the least. So here's, here's my mental framework. I believe that something like market cap um, is a better example of value to society if a high market cap, you've probably created value. For low market cap, no. Price is irrelevant because price is just multiplied by circulating supply to give you the market cap. So the price of, of 42 coin is like $200,000, but the market cap is bugger all. So um, it's, it's an irrelevant project. So the market cap is worthless, but the price is very high. So it shows you that price doesn't really account for economic value. Right? Price is not value. Market cap is value. Why we call it valuation. Now, in an EIP-1559 deflationary environment, ignore the actual absolute numbers, but in theory, you could be burning as much as your price is going up. So price goes up 10%, but you burn 10% of the supply. Therefore, your market cap is sideways. You could also have a situation where your price goes up 5%, but you burn 10% of the supply. So your price went up, but your market cap went down. As a result, 
you can destroy value but benefit existing holders. That, to me, is benefiting those who are early on ETH at the expense of everyone in the future. You no longer need to create value for society and lift your market cap to benefit existing holders with price. But price benefits those people because they can sell it for more. So that is a mental model I've had for a very long time. As soon as I started talking about EIP-1559, um, essentially you are benefiting existing holders. Future holders do not get any of that because you're not creating value. In fact, you could let ETH, you could drop the issuance to zero and all it does is burn, right? No one even uses it, but price can keep going up and up and up and up and up until you get 42 ETH, right? Becomes 42 coin, price is $6 million, but the whole network is worth less than a billion. So this and it makes those holders very, very rich. It's basically last man standing, last man selling um, gets the maximum value. So, you know, that's my kind of issue with their whole... I mean, there's many other layers, but um, the balance of power, yes, all these monetary policies benefit ETH holders, but it disadvantages network users and it disadvantages future holders. It's actually an oligarchy problem. And I think that I'm not sure if they don't care or if it's irrelevant. And in many ways, people don't care about decentralization. It's why their coins are on Coinbase. So... We as Bitcoiners also need to accept and come to the terms and reality of Bitcoin made the right choices, but the cost so people don't care, right? That is the price that we pay for keeping our principles, essentially, um, and keeping Bitcoin a principled asset, which is the correct road to take. We need that, and it's the only one that has done that, aside from, I would argue, Monero, to be honest. Um, very, very few projects maintain their principles over the very, very long term, but the price of that is that ETH could flip Bitcoin, and Bitcoiners need to get ready for that, but it will come at the price of essentially Ethereum selling its soul and becoming a fully centralized and arguably captured regulatory asset, which maybe it serves a purpose, but it also may not. So interesting dilemma, but uh, certainly one to, to wrap your noodle around. Yeah, those are definitely some, some interesting points. From a big picture, I guess, perspective, why do you think censorship resistance is critical for like the success or, of, of Bitcoin or ETH? Yeah, um, very good question. I mean, um, probably more relevant these days than, uh, than, than if you take it back a decade. I mean, look at the, uh, the amount of censorship we see online. It's, I mean, look at the narratives that get shut out of uh, mainstream media. And, um, you know, all of these things, and I think the, the Canadian truckers event is a very, very good example of this. Um, you know, they shut off people's bank accounts. They shut off people who donated before that was even a rule. They shut off their bank accounts. Um, <clears throat> censorship resistance, I mean, it may not matter for you and I in the Western world. Um, what about a journalist who's over in the Middle East in a war zone and needs to get out or is against the, the government? or All these edge cases, right? Um, it, it is really, really important for people to have access to sound finance um, and monetary assets. I mean, um, you and I, um, we don't have any say in which countries get sanctioned, right? Um, you know, um, I've, I've got a friend who's, who's um, Iranian, right? And he just wants to send money back home to his family. I mean, that's, that, that's a perfectly legitimate human thing to want to do. And yet it's a criminal offense. So things like this, uh, you know, I'm sure most people um, who know anybody um, uh, who's kind of come out of, uh, you know, anywhere in Latin America or anywhere in, in, in the Middle East, there's, there's countries where you just can't exist um, in a free society and move money around uh, as you want. You get questioned, you get stopped. So, you know, giving these people 
freedom and access to these financial tools is, I mean, it's a humanitarian case that I find it very hard for anyone except a fiat apologist to, uh, um, to really contend with. So, you know, there, there's, there's many reasons. Sadly, um, we're coming closer and closer, even in the West, to starting to realize these things. I think this is where I think Bitcoin really stands quite unique. The engineering of it has thought about these things for many, many years. It's always been part of the design principles. To be designing censorship resistance into your protocol at the last minute is crazy. To be designing it in from day one is essential if you want to maintain it. So, um, you know, and again, Bitcoin has its challenges on the privacy front. That's a big one. Um, in terms of if you want to censor someone, the fact that you can, I mean, the Canadian truckers, again, good example of censorship resistance working and why we need it. However, the government seized a good chunk of those funds because there was no privacy. So it works both ways. Um, it's, it is a very, very challenging situation and sadly one that we all need to take more seriously. And in many ways, people need to actually experience the loss of not having privacy uh, before, you know, sadly people need to kind of be burnt before they understand the necess necessity of it. Um, a lot of people ask me why I'm pseudonymous. I mean, you know, I'm on a video, video call here, but, you know, over, over time, these, I have a choice. I can choose to reveal myself because um, I'm pseudonymous. Once you give it away, you can't take it back, right? So it's optionality. And um, once you kind of explain that, people understand it more, right? And again, um, because I'm in the Bitcoin space, people don't, they don't know um, whether I have, I've, have lots of Bitcoin, but they can assume it because I'm involved in the space if they know who you are. So you get that attack vector, right? So people don't really understand privacy until you actually think deeply about it Think about the long-term implications, um, and there are risks, and people in different parts of the world take on far more risk than we do in the West, and uh, often you need to either talk to someone who's been through it um, or go through it yourself before you fully appreciate why censorship resistance is important. Definitely. Um, going off on a, a different direction, um, for those that don't know, there's these new um, companies or protocols or whatever, however you want to describe them. One's called Fuji Money and one's called Sovereign Zero Protocol. Um, They're basically cr trying to, to create a way to where you can deposit your Bitcoin as collateral and borrow dollars at 0% at interest. Uh, it's basically a over-collateralized Bitcoin-backed stablecoin. I know we've exchanged uh, comments about this on Twitter, both publicly and privately. Um, what are your thoughts on, on those technologies? Uh, do you think they can work? Do you think that they can't work? And, and what are your thoughts on, I know one's built on Liquid and one's built on RSK. What are your thoughts on, on that as well? Totally. Um, and look, this is a really interesting, um, interesting topic. I'm really glad that it's becoming more to the forefront. Um, bring it back to our toxic maximalist conversation before. What I think is the glaring hole in Bitcoin are... Um, I guess you call it uh, cultural awareness, is that we do need to build for censorship resistance, we do need to build financial applications that give Bitcoin optionality. Because burying a cold card in the back of your backyard for 20 years and then giving it to your kids, that's, that's great. But that's not the end result. We need to be able to do more with it. Now, as you mentioned, um, basically what you're alluding to is getting into a, a DeFi basis. Now, we can all debate the term of DeFi, how D is it? Um, there's always going to be centralization vectors of these things, but there's also trade-offs. Now, a big critique I've had of Ethereum is that 
if your if your main purpose is moving stable coins around, whether it's in borrow or collateral, Circle, as we saw with Tornado Cash, can freeze that instantaneously. Do you need fully decentralized rails to support something that can get frozen anyway? Yeah, probably not. So the trade-offs of less centralization, if you're building more centralized apps, then having a less centralized base is probably okay. Now, when it comes to the DeFi systems, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's different variants, right? Different chains, different side chains, different designs. Um, you know, there's things like drive chains, um, which is basically an altcoin um, uh, node. That require the trade-off there is we require a soft fork for Bitcoin to make that happen, and that's going to take politically many, many years. Does Bitcoin, you know, do we need this stuff? That's another philosophical question. But drive chains, the trade-off is we need a soft fork. It's going to take a long time. Um, I'm skeptical we're going to get the momentum on it. I'd love to see it because I like competition. I'd love to see it happen, but it needs to happen. There's space chains, which I know a hell of a lot less about. I need to do my reading more on it by uh, by Ruben Summonson. Now, these things are similar to drive chains, different trade-offs. Both of them, I believe, have something to do with... with uh, I know drive chains are blind merge mining, which puts the miners into control. You've got like a three-month withdrawal process. Space chains, as I said, I need to do more work on to understand them. But similar system. Basically, the, the, the mining, it, it basically puts the, uh, the control of peg-in, peg-outs to miners. Um, then there's the other option, which is things like uh, Liquid. Now, Liquid is a federated sidechain. What that basically means is that you've got um, 12 exchanges. Is it better than trusting one exchange? Yes. Is it better than trusting um, 100 exchanges or 100 different entities? No. But is it more decentralized than one? Yes. Um, so the other one, actually, you can argue Coinbase and Binance, they are extensions of Bitcoin, fully centralized, but you get optionality. You get all the DeFi services. They may not be DeFi, but you still get to access different services. So Fuji money, if I understand correctly, and again, I, I haven't spent too much time digging into the docs. I, I understand the Ethereum side a lot more, and what I know is that those principles have been borrowed and redeployed on Liquid and, and Sovereign. So um, obviously with nuances and tweaks, but the same principles apply. So um, uh, on, uh, on Liquid, you've got a federated sidechain. You are trusting a multi-sig system. Um, there was a bit of a debacle, it would have been maybe a couple of years back, where it was discovered that it actually that multi-sig was about four people at Blockstream that had access to it. So, you know, there, there's, there's trade-offs here um, that you are essentially sacrificing. Um, drive chains and space chains are more decentralized because you're putting control um, with Bitcoin miners. Um, uh, basically, Liquid is a completely separate side chain. Um, I'm personally not a huge fan of Liquid. I don't think it's been, I think it's kind of bastardized what a sidechain is. I don't think it is even strictly a sidechain. I think it's a misnomer. Um, but it is another option that exists. You've then got something like um, RSK, um, which is also one of these merge mine systems. Um, but the system, basically you can peg in your coins and peg them out. It uses BTC as gas. Um, however, you essentially have a federated peg. So along all these different spectrums, there's layers of centralization. Once you go into the DeFi protocols themselves, generally speaking, the Oracle is going to be centralized, which I'm actually not opposed to um, because I don't believe the Oracle situation can be solved in a decentralized manner. Um, the only way you can actually solve, in my personal opinion, the Oracle problem is by essentially having a robust one where you pull multiple feeds and you have checks and balances and things like that. Uh, moving averages to kind of slow and make it more expensive to attack. Um, and, you know, having those kind of triggers, it, it's a lot of engineering, but doing something on that vein 
um, is probably about as close as you're going to get. I think I'm, I'm very sceptical of all the chain links and the bands and all these types of things. Um, I'm, I'm just not, I don't think they're cryptographically secure. In fact, I don't think they are cryptographically um, secured in any way, shape or form. But again, look, you're always going to have centralization vectors. The other big risk um, is currency pegs. So DAI is a good example um, from the Maker Protocol. They broke their peg to the downside and to the upside. Their solution, at the end of the day, was plugging USDC in and backing it one-to-one. Now, that's obviously got centralization vectors. Someone turns off USDC, dies done. So um, that's another trade-off. And if you get a stable coin that has a soft peg, the likes of which Fuji and, um, and uh, what's the other one? Sovereign and uh, Deploy. Zero. Yeah, there's, there's no question. They may well work until you get big enough that there's an economic incentive to make it not work. So there's, there's always challenges here. Um, and if you get a currency peg big enough, there's going to be a George Soros come along and say, I'm smarter than you are, and I've got more capital than you do. I'm not saying they can't work, but they need to be tested at scale. There's an enormous risk there on the peg. There's centralization vectors on the oracles. Um, there's then federations and things on the peg in, peg outs. And again, all these risks compound up the stack. So it's one of those things where I'm very glad to see competition. Um, a blind spot for Bitcoiners is that because they just said Ethereum's a shitcoin, they never spent time watching the DeFi ecosystem evolve. So they have a lot of blind spots and where risk shows up. Um, they haven't seen these mechanisms before and there's a fear they're going to make the same mistakes um, and not understand the risks because they didn't experience it. Um, there's also a lot of narrative trust in Liquid because it's Blockstream. That's misplaced, right? They're still exchanges. They have the exact, the exact same problem I described with proof of stake. Same problem, same exchanges, same 13 validators, same problem. Um, they can halt and freeze and take your money. It can happen, right? So people need to understand these risks. I think Bitcoiners have a blind spot to it. Um, I also think the competition is required. And toxic maximalists should be, in fact, promoting, maybe not the issuance of shit coins, but also respecting that you can have pseudo equities, right? Someone has to pay to build this stuff. And if you build a protocol and you issue a pseudo-equity, if you do it as a security, a registered one, what's the problem? Like, what's the problem? People can make their own risk decisions, especially if they're properly registered securities. People complain about ICOs. Well, don't do an ICO. Do an actual properly compliant security offering um, and allow people to invest of their own accord. You may think it's a shitcoin, but this guy may make a whole lot of money. And empirically speaking, a lot of these things have, in fact, given remarkable returns, well over and above Bitcoin. Sure, they get wrecked in a bear market. Bitcoin got wrecked against the US dollar as well. So being reasonable and actually accepting that there's going to be competition, um, promoting proper pseudo equities, I think, is a good um, path to take um, and actually do it properly and allow this infrastructure to get built out because you need funding. You're not going to get this through donations. And that's why RSK is taking so long to get built out. It's why Fuji has taken so long to get built out. And they're in a position where they can get funding um, from centralized entities. So there's trade-offs, there's risks. Um, Bitcoiners, I think, have a big blind spot because of they didn't want to look at DeFi. So we're going to have to go through and learn the hacks, the oracle breaks, the pegs. We're going to get wrecked. Bitcoiners are going to get wrecked because they never studied what happened over there on the other side of the fence. So it's going to be a, a fun process. We have to go through it. We need to go through it. And, uh, you know, there'll be opportunities and wrecked all the way through. 
Yeah, you you bring up some some definitely interesting points, and you know I, I definitely agree to the extent that like Fuji Money and Zero are definitely very experimental, you know, concepts, right? Like they're, they're there's no guarantees it's going to blow up, but it's definitely very possible that the peg breaks the liquid side chain, like you can't peg out for some reason. The RSK uh, merge mining doesn't work as as intended. Um, so I definitely think there's risk. And on top of that, I mean, I think when you use leverage with, with things like Bitcoin, it's an extremely volatile asset. And that's if that's your collateral, that's kind of another just very risky uh, uh, strategy in of itself. So the people can make their points. own risk decisions, right? This, this is, the, this is the, my biggest, my biggest pain point with toxic maximalists. If you believe in the free market and that Bitcoin will win, then just outcompete all the shitcoins. Let the free market do its job, be better. Because normies come in, they see Bitcoin, they go, oh, it's a dinosaur coin, it's a boomer coin. I, I, I'm not, and again, this comes back to the original thing, which is, do we need to build all these things? Well, some of them, yes. And the logic to that is, Two and a half percent of the supply, the Bitcoin supply, is in BitGo's wallet as WBTC on Ethereum. And even after all the chaos of this bear market, most of it is still there. It didn't get unwrapped. It didn't get pulled back onto Bitcoin. There is demand from at least two percent of the supply. That's non-trivial. Two percent of the supply on Ethereum working in DeFi. The demand's there. Build the stuff to make sure people don't have to go to Ethereum. Be better than your competition. Let the free market do its job and Bitcoin will win. But if you don't take that approach, you are going to lose people, right? I mean, people can yell and scream about NFTs. I think most of them are scams as well. Some of them are kind of interesting. My profile picture is an NFT. I think it's great, right? It's something that I just want to buy. I want to buy it because I want it. I just like it. I don't care about the price, right? Some people just like the concept of owning one out of 400 or something. It's scarcity. So, you know, if you can cryptographically secure and give Bitcoiners, who some of them do want to buy this stuff, Given the optionality, and Bitcoin will win, right? If you call everything a shitcoin, then they're going to go to ETH and use that stuff over there because you didn't give them an option. Give them an option. Yep. Um, so uh, I know you make videos for Glassnode. This will be pretty much my last question. Then we shut it off. I know you make great videos for Glassnode. You're talking about Bitcoin on-chain, Bitcoin derivatives, and you don't have to be direct with this answer, but is the Bitcoin bottom in? Was 17.6K at the bottom, or do we need more capitulation? Uh, great question. And look, it's, um, it's I mean, no, no one knows the future, right? So you caveat by that. But uh, when I look at a lot of the, there's a few layers to this. So first one is, um, how severe was the, bear, was the bear market? Now, you know, 75% down, people are like, well, it wasn't as severe as previous bears. But when you look under the hood, and you look at the magnitude of capitulation from all cohorts, the amount of money that got flushed out of this system relative to market size, even though the market's much bigger, the amount that got purged was just absolutely enormous. We had Lunar and then that final sell-off below the 20,000 all-time high was just monumental. So in terms of the fundamental economics, oh yeah, I mean, talk about a capitulation, it was one of the biggest we've ever seen. Um, we came down and what I actually like, I mean, I'd love it to be the bottom, because it came down and it touched a model that I'm a huge fan of, um, just a log-log regression with difficulty and market cap. And the way I look at that, difficulty is the price of mining. All in, I don't care about those 10% S9s and some guys in Kazakhstan and some guys mining off hydro, doesn't matter. It all gets boiled down into one price, difficulty. Now, when you do a log-log regression with difficulty and market cap, 
It's like a 0.97% correl um, uh, correlation R-squared number. So it's higher than stock to flow, more correct than stock to flow. It just doesn't have the future projection because we don't know what difficulty is in the future. So it's not as memeable. However, my view on that is that it's essentially the cost of production for BTC, the all-in sustaining cost. Um, now, Charles Edwards done a model. There was someone else. I think maybe even you guys. There's like a, a gravity hash price. So there's a bunch of different models. Yeah. Bitcoin Layer did one. There's about four or five yep. different models, and they're all in that like fifteen to eighteen thousand dollar range. Well, this thing, this difficulty price is seventeen point six at the time of that capitulation. So Bitcoin came back and retested its cost of production, and it's obviously bounced since. So from both investor behaviour. Um, pretty much every cyclical behavior you could possibly ask for, every on-chain metric I'm aware of, um, forced selling, right? If you gave me a checklist, asked me to write you a checklist six months ago, forced selling by capitulation, right? We had three arrows blowing up. We had mining hash rate inversion. We had um, core scientific puking 75% of their, uh, their BTC. Um, what else did we have? It, it was basically a laundry list of everything you could possibly ask for at a bottom. So if it's not the bottom, then... You know, let's set history. Um, but when you look at that laundry list of things, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I, I, I think I tend to agree. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and wrap this up. First, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think this is awesome, very timely, and put out a lot of great stuff. Where can people go after this podcast to follow you, and is there anything else that you want to plug? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, so you can follow me at underscore checkmatey uh, on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm always posting about some something or other. Um, but really, if you want to get kind of the uh, the bulk of the work that me and my team is doing over at Glassnode, um, you know, that, that's really where we put most of our thoughts to, to paper um, and to video. Um, so uh, you'll find that over at Insights uh, Glassnode. Um, you know, basically each week we'll do a, a report called the Week on Chain, and the Week on Chain is essentially where we kind of show you how to use the on-chain toolkit. Um, we try and show you different concepts. How do you compare? derivatives with the on-chain space? How do you look at supply moving around? How do you look at on-chain activity? How do you make sense of the data? Um, we then distill that down into a video once a week. Um, so the newsletter comes out on Mondays, a video on Tuesdays. Some people are visual learners. Some people prefer to read. So we try to give people enough tools to just understand how to use these things. Um, my big thing with on-chain is that uh, it's, it's essentially edge that Wall Street wish they had. Um, and the average person, a lot, a lot of people say that it's complex. It is but only if you don't practice, right, as with everything. So it's one of those things you learn a little bit more each week, and uh, over time, these concepts start to make sense. Um, and I'm pretty much open. If you ping me on Twitter or any other format, um, I will almost always respond uh, unless I completely miss it. Um, I'm more than happy to help people kind of understand the tools and, uh, and get better at it because I think it gives people edge, even if it's just helping you huddle through the chaos. Um, you understand why and what's going on. Awesome. Yeah. Great to hear. And, and I'm a big fan of the videos. I watch them every week. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, mate. Yep. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Pleasure. Cheers.